0: So we are continuing our year of biblical literacy. Um, This is sort of episode two of series one Uh, under the banner of It Is Written. Last week we asked the question, what is, um, I'm not holding it in my hand, what is this mini library that we hold in our hands? Our basic conclusion was it is an ancient text. Next week will be getting down and dusty with the scrolls and the manuscripts, um, if you like that sort of thing. This week, um, we're asking the basic question, how do we come to receive this ancient text as an authority in our lives? In what sense is this God's word? And to begin, we need to start with a bit of MC Escher. Any Escher fans out there? One, good. Um, this, understandably, is titled Drawing hands. Now, you may not. Um, this may be a surprise to you, but sometimes I can be, uh, or have known, been known to be a little bit pretentious in my sort of attempts to try and be quirky and cool and, and edgy and stuff like that. As a student in um, uh, in my hall of residence room, I had this very picture blue-tacked, along with a load of. He does all those um, like never-ending staircases and the waterfalls, all of those sort of visual paradoxes. Anyway, this one's called drawing hands. And the question is, which hand is drawing the other hand? Is this hand drawing that hand, or is that hand drawing that hand? And the answer is, of course, yeah, both. In the Judeo-Christian Orthodox tradition, the the Orthodox conviction within our tradition has been, um, when it comes to the Bible, And the questions of where does it come from? The, the orthodox conviction has been um, that it is the word of God, but it's also a very human word. And in those questions of is this, you know, who wrote the Bible? Did God write the Bible or did did, did people write the Bible? the answer is yeah. both. the thing is. Many of us often function, in the church at least, if we've sort of grown up in the church or been sort of adopted into this family, um, we often function as though one of the hands is a bit covered over, and we, and we kind of operate with the, the thought that this, this is, you know, very simple answer, what is this? Oh, this is the word of God. Who wrote the Bible? God wrote it, case closed, end of the story. And we function as if it kind of dropped out of heaven written on some, some golden tablets. Or maybe we're a bit more sophisticated than that and we know that that wasn't the case. And uh, what happened was that, that God kind of took over some, some human hands in a kind of Holy Spirit trance and zzz, 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 more Lord, and they wrote out the Bible and it's God's words come to us just like that. That is not what the Bible itself is asking us to, to believe about how it came into existence. From first-hand experience, I get it, that if that's the view of the Bible that we've grown up with or adopted, often unspoken, we just sort of assumed, yeah, God wrote the Bible, inspired human authors um, pretty directly, Um, when we then sort of open our eyes to the very human makings of the Bible, that can be a bit disorientating, a little bit, ooh, not sure about that. Uh, But can I also say, from first-hand experience, that when we go there what we discover is so worth discovering. And in fact, it's really important to to what the Bible is. It's really important to our witness, because on the other side of things, you have that relativistic, accommodating impulse that would cover over the divine hand and say, the Bible, oh yeah, that's that's merely a human artifact. We know it is. We can see the history of how it came into being. And yes, it might contain some... um, some human wisdom. It might contain actually a a valuable, important record of of how people a long time ago in another sort of place encountered something of the divine. But other than that, that rich human wisdom, there's no way in which we want to have this book as some sort of divine authority over our lives, that we'd shape our lives around it. In fact, Anyone who thinks that that God wrote the Bible, they need to open their eyes and and be free from all of those rules and regulations. That's just the church or, or whoever making some sort of power grab, seeking to control their lives. You need to open your eyes and be free from all of that stuff. You know that one? The Bible does not ask us to close our eyes to its human origins. And as we shall see, this is no problem whatsoever in maintaining that this is the Word of God. And in fact, it's a really essential part of coming to receive this as the beautiful and true sort of authority in our lives that it invites us to to receive it as. So, the first mention of the writing of the Bible in the Bible is where? It's actually in our reading for today, Exodus chapter 17 turn to it, if you will. It's that um, extraordinary story of the Amalekites. They come and they attack the Israelites, and then you've got Moses up on the hill, um, and he he gets his arms up in this sort of sign of dependence on God, calling on heaven to to help them. And as he has his hands raised, the Israelites are winning um, this battle. And as he gets tired and his arms begin to droop, uh, the Amalekites start winning. And so the other dudes are holding up Moses' hands and... um, and the Israelites win. And you've got this vivid picture of their utter dependence on God as he saves and he delivers his people. And then gets to verse 14. And off the back of all of that extraordinary action, God gives that nudge to Moses. And he says, write this on a scroll to be remembered. What's the this that's being written down on the scroll there? It's the record of what just happened. This breathtaking moment of God saving and delivering his people. That is something to be remembered. Of course this is not the first time that these people have been called to remember something, remember an extraordinary event of God's saving and deliverance. Their story began where? In Egypt, uh, under Pharaoh and you've got the one where Moses is saying, let my people go and Pharaoh is like, no I'm not gonna let your people go, even with ten chances. Eventually, with that rushed Passover meal and the blood of the unblemished lamb painted on their doorposts, the Hebrew slaves and all the associated riffraff that came along with them um, out into the desert. They were led out of their captivity and dramatically delivered from the armies of Pharaoh. That first time that they were delivered by God's saving grace, they were called to remember that, not by writing things down on a scroll, but how? with a meal. It was this annual remembrance meal with the, 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 the hurried, rushed, unleavened bread and the, the cup of the kosher wine. It was all about remembering God's saving action, remembering these vivid demonstrations of what God had done, revealing his character, what he was like, just how committed he was to them. Are you with me? So whatever, whatever else you think the Bible is for, at its foundations, is absolutely concerned with telling the story of of who God is, of what he's done, of how he has saved and delivered his people. Let's talk about Cardiff City Football Club for a minute, if you will. I grew up in Cardiff, I am a loose, lazy, not very loyal fan of Cardiff City. Um, A few years back, this chap on the left, Vincent Tan, he became our chairman if you don't understand like football clubs and champions, it seems to me that you've got some super, super, super rich people in the world who are not content for their great wealth to be just kind of enjoyed fairly anonymously. And so as a way of kind of buying a bit of fame and um, uh, glory or, or whatever for themselves, they go in and buy a football club, and suddenly their name is in the papers alongside um, Ryan Giggs and whoever else. This happens from, uh, to my beloved Cardiff City. Um, Vincent Tan from Malaysia came in, came in with all his money. He also came in with an agenda to like rebrand the club, the Bluebirds, Cardiff City. Um, he attempted to kind of turn into the Red Dragon. So he made us change our kit to red shirts. He changed the emblem to this thing with a, a dragon on it. This was going to fly in Asia in the export market. He was in this for the money. Can you imagine being in that room? where he sets out his agenda, you know, he's just bought out of the club, and you've got all like, the sort of Carter City board or fans, supporters clubs or whatever, and he's like, right, Bluebirds, we are going to be a team in red. Or else I'm taking my money and I'm going uh, elsewhere. And, it's like, oh! and it was such a traumatic time, and he was despised um, in the club for this thing he was pulling. Um, let me tell you about another person, another big name, Cardiff City, on the right, This is Fred Keener. Back in the late 1920s, he led Cardiff City to not one, but two FA Cup finals, the second of which, in 1927, we beat Arsenal 1-0. And and that's the high point in the the club's career. Um, So much so that there's a statue of him outside the new Cardiff City Stadium holding the FA Cup. This this guy was one of us. He was Cardiff-born, Cardiff-bred, son of a bricklayer, um, general legend. And he smoked at the same time. That's a cool guy. Now, imagine, this, what I'm telling you this, imagine um, off the back of, of all that he'd done in the late 20s, it gets to about 1930, Fred's retiring, and he, and he has this vision, and he sits down with all the powers that be at Cardiff City, and he says, look, how about, let's just think forward, how about if the humble bluebirds actually off the back of our success now, gave birth to the Red Dragons. Imagine we, we changed our, our club, we expanded our vision, we were going to, you know... The, the whole dynamic in that room would have been entirely different because this was Fred Kino telling us about this opportunity, this invitation to, oh, dreaming about being the Red Dragons or whatever. Silly example because that never happened, but what I'm trying to get at is the difference in power dynamics between a dictatorship, effectively, and some sort of relationship wrought in sacrifice and um, action and, um, and what has, what's happened and leadership and what's, what's, what's been won there. The, the pa- it's a very, you know, essentially, we're talking about the same thing, changing a blue shirt to a red shirt. But the whole, it's a very different thing as well. This isn't like the hard imposition of better do this or else. Actually, um, we're talking about a different sort of authority that, that Fred Keener. Uh, would have carried, had he had that crazy idea to turn blue shirts to red. Keep that in mind as we come on to the second mention of the writing of the Bible in the Bible, which is where? Exodus 24, just seven chapters later. What's happened in the meantime is that the Israelites have... Um, uh, they've made it to Mount Sinai or Horeb as it's sometimes called in other parts of the Old Testament. And, and there God has revealed himself to all, uh, all the people with the thunder and the smoke. And he's calling them to be something different, to be um, a contrasting community, a contrasting culture to um, everything else that is, is around. Um, he says in, in chapter 19 that they're to be God's treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Priest is all about going between, uh, being this this go-between sort of people, giving reflection on the face of the earth to who God is. Recovering something of that Genesis 1.26 vocation from last week to to, uh, carry God's image. Um, So, in chapter 19, everyone's up for it. They say, yep, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so in chapter 20, God starts to spell out what it means for them to be this, this priestly people, this, this holy nation, uh, this contrasting community. It starts with the Ten Commandments, uh, just to ease them into it, because then this is quickly followed by <laughs> loads of uh, rules and regulations, just spelling out exactly what this means. Eventually in chapter 24, verse 3, we read this, And when Moses went and told all the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Which is ironic, because uh, as we will get to in the story, um, they don't quite live up to their aspirations in that moment. Uh, But verse 4, Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. So this is it. This is the second mention of the writing of the Bible in the Bible. What's he writing down here? It's the terms of the covenant you scan down to verse 7 and you see that this this book of the covenant is emerging there. It's the instructions of who they are to be, how they are to live. Um, We're not all that familiar with the word covenant today. Um, More familiar with contract. (laughs) Covenant and contract are very different things. It's not about um, some legal thing in which we can demand our rights against. Um, Actually it's more about promising to to give yourself. We still have the word, uh, we use it for marriage, don't we, a covenant of marriage. That's a better picture of of what this is. These are not, the Ten Commandments and and all the the rules, the the book of the covenant there is not dropped out of heaven on some golden tablets uh, which you must obey or else, or else you're going to go to the bad place when you die. Sometimes that's the picture, kind of pop culture picture of the rules and stuff in the Bible. This is God's word, Poof, he says you've got to do this or else. It's not some ugly power grab, it's not some forceful imposition of, of some like hard, brutal authority out of the blue and into the red as it was <laughs> in Cardiff City. This is no Vincent Tan moment going on here. This is an invitation to covenants, to a promised way of life that's demanding, that's costly, sacrificial to be sure. But it's an invitation, do you see, that's been wrought in compassionate, loving, delivering action. Beware of anyone who claims to have received the word of God and is just asking you to close your eyes and have faith and believe it. Don't believe them. They're trying to grab control of you. And they probably just want your money, you know? this is an invitation to have your eyes open to see what God has done in his saving mercy and then to live in appropriate response. Do you see how different uh, that is? It's not about having blind faith it's about having your eyes open to what God has done and therefore in light of that to consider this invitation to a demanding costly way of life uh, that he calls us to. So firstly this book is about remembering, telling the story of God saving and delivering a people and then in light of that saving grace, it's about this invitation to respond and walk with him into the sort of life uh, that we were made for. It's not because God has said so and therefore we must fall in line or else. It's because God has done so and in light of that why would we want to do anything else? It's not because God just says so and therefore we have gotta fall in line or else because God has done so, shown himself to be so, and therefore, in that light, why would we want anything else than what he is beautifully inviting us into? Okay, so who wrote, who wrote this? The unavoidable fact when it comes to the Old Testament is that we don't really know who wrote it. So you take a look at the first, um, go back to our bookshelf from last week, um, we've got the Old Testament up as far as the um, little Jesus crucifix on the shelf there. Um, the first five books, traditionally, tradition has sort of ascribed them to Moses, but there's no way that, that he could have written um, all of the first five books of the Bible. If you look in Genesis 36, um, you go to the next slide. I think I've written this out for us. Genesis 36, you've got this reference. It's giving this... We're going to be there on Tuesday, actually, so you can look out for it on Tuesday if you're following the daily readings. You've got this fun, like, genealogy list of the Esau's um, descendants, I think, is it? Yes, and, and it's talking about the kings who reigned in the land of Edom, and then it says, this was before any king reigned over the Israelites. That's all happening, like, kings over Israelites is 200 years or so after uh, Moses. So who wrote that little reference there. And I really hope Moses didn't write Numbers um, 12 verse 3 it is. Now Moses was very humble, more so than any, all of the people on the face of the earth. And then there's the account of Moses's death in Deuteronomy 34. Did he write that? You know, Clearly there is more, more going on than just ascribing all of the first five books to Moses. Um, similarly the prophets, that next chunk, um, they wrote through scribes and um, and it seems you've got these prophetic preacher dudes um, who, who their, their scribes and their followers recorded just some of their, their you know, perhaps lifelong ministries. Um, and, and it seems that they've added to some of this um, tradition just to let it to speak into subsequent situations. Remember the happy ending to the book of Amos that looks like it's been uh, bolted on. Um, there's this sort of fluid... Uh, tradition um within the old testament the book of proverbs is really interesting um if you read through it and, and it, it doesn't hide this at all it, you've got all these different ascriptions um going through so at the beginning these are the proverbs of solomon the son of david the king of israel yeah we know who wrote proverbs that's solomon and then 24:23, and these also were the sayings of the wise 25 verse 1 now these are more proverbs of solomon that were copied by the men of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is centuries after Solomon. And then mysteriously, chapter 30 of Proverbs, these are the sayings of Agur son of Jacer. We have no idea who that is. And then 31, the words of King Lemuel that his mother taught him. (laughs) That King Lemuel doesn't appear in a list of Israel's kings anywhere. Um, This is wrapping arm around um, much of the contemporary wisdom um, literature of the day and saying, yes, it's all gods. But do you see the sort of fluidity of the development of these texts? One more thing to notice, it's really interesting, um, is this. Go to the next slide. When you look, you've got these three chunks in the three sort of compartments of the Old Testament. When you look at the... Uh, last verses and the first verses of each of these sections, you notice this. At the end so at the end of Deuteronomy 34, at the end of the Torah, the, the law, it says this: um, "Since then, no prophet has arisen in Israel uh, like Moses." Uh, it's like, since the time of Moses, there hasn't been another, another one like Moses. Um, uh, and then, then the, the prophets, straight after that, start. This book of the law, i.e. The, the Torah, shall not depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. The last verse of the prophet, the last verses, um, it says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. And then the first verse in the, the section of the writings, the beginning of Psalm 1, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on it day and night. You see how it's sort of hanging together? This is called editing. When the way that all of these writings have been collected together and arranged such that it all hangs together to tell the story of what God has done. And clearly, as this story has been put together and shaped and collected, clearly there is this expectation, this hope, perhaps increasingly a desperate hope, under the Roman... Um, oppression, this desperate hope that God was not finished with them yet, that actually this covenant that they had been attempting to walk in, failing to walk in, actually this covenant was still live, that, that the one promised, the, the another one like Moses that was promised actually was still to arrive, that the need for another Elijah was still there and so the people they watched and they waited as they held their Tanakh, their Old Testament as they read of who God is and what he's done and they prayed for another move of God and then into that scene into that story Jesus is born and this is the one Luke 24 who claims all of this story the story of of who God is of what he's done actually points to me these scriptures are fulfilled in me and this couldn't have been more obvious than when um, at that Passover that last Passover meal he took The bread, and he said, This is my body. And he took the wine, and he said, This is my blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. What he's saying is, You know that one about Pharaoh? You know that one about your deliverance out of Egypt? Well, actually, there's an even deeper enemy here than your pharaohs or your caesars and it's more sinister and it's more foreign, it's this personal mysterious reality that is evil that traps, that dehumanizes that that brings us down, that corrupts things, that causes us to do insane things that's the enemy he's saying, but in me says Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins Because he believes that he's about to take into himself the entire train wreck of human history. All the sin, the havoc, the death and destruction, all the stuff that we have all participated in. He says that's not going to have the last word. Because there is a more glorious and far-reaching liberation that's coming. He's talking about a new exodus. A new covenant. And we participate in this new freedom, this new purpose. How? By receiving a meal. So, our allegiance, our devotion is not to a book, it's to a person. We're invited into a covenant relationship with a person and we accept Jesus as the divine authority over our lives. And then the authority of this this book is derived from his authority over all things. And it's the authority of the one who's loved us and given himself for us. It's not dictatorship. It's an invitation to covenant relationship wrought in love and sacrifice. And so we find that we can willingly give ourselves to this authority. There's nothing soft about this authority. Actually, Jesus wants to confront all of the pharaoh-like stuff in each of us. He wants to confront it. He wants to kill it. But he doesn't want to kill you. The point of this whole yobble stuff is not that we get all smart and sophisticated. The point is that we discover the sweet authority of Jesus in our lives. I don't know what that means for each of us. But I do know that it's the sort of authority that is really, really good news. Shall we stand?